Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And summer is over. I have a lecture to write about the euro that really needs to be done before the uh, term starts about southern Europe. Before the euro fails. I'm told that by the time you hear this, it won't be as miserable and wet and rainy as it is now, but we're looking out my office window and it doesn't look like summer anymore. Uh, I'm in denial about West Ham. I'm pretending the football season hasn't really begun. Chris Bickerton told us a couple of weeks ago that this week in France is la rentrée, when beach life ends and everything else starts again in a big bang. Kids go back to school, politicians go back to work. It's a bit softer in Britain. It's a bit more staggered, but it feels like la rentrée began around now. I've got Helen Thompson with me, and we are going to gently put our toe back into the water of speculating about what might come next. Not predicting, but speculating. So the British resumption of politics after the summer break, and it has felt like a break, I think, weirdly, this year. Jeremy Corbyn has been travelling around the country, but there's almost been no coverage of it. Theresa May's been away. It's a sort of staggered start. Parliament, I think, comes back on the 5th or 6th of September, but that's brief, and then there's another break for the conference season. I imagine this year the conference season is going to be important, possibly more important than what happens in Parliament. Both of the two main parties have got some serious things to maybe not resolve, but tackle particularly maybe the Labour conference, and we'll talk about this in a second. I I want to see what's happened to the opposition to Jeremy Corbyn inside the Parliamentary Labour Party and whether it's been cowed into submission. In a bit more than three weeks, there's an election in Germany. We'll talk about that. Donald Trump is still President of the United States. We'll talk about that. But Helen, I was going to start with something which already feels a bit like a silly season story. One of the few things that got much traction in British politics over the summer was the speculation about this new party called the Democrats, the sort of pro-Brexit party that this guy called James Chapman, who had been political editor of the Daily Mail, he had been chief of staff to David Davis, he then became a, a weirdly incontinent tweeter, started off quite angry and then became stranger and stranger. But anyway, around all of that, there was talk, and there has been for a while, about the strange current state of British politics, where the ostensible third party, the pro-Brexit party, the Lib Dems, can't seem to persuade anyone to take them seriously anymore, even with their new leader, Vince Cable. The two main parties have gone back to having almost all the vote between them. And yet, lots of people seem unhappy with that choice. So is there a possibility of a space being carved out for all of the people who once upon a time didn't feel that that tribal politics was for them and now are trapped in a world where it's all gone tribal. It's not going to be James Chapman's Democrats. But do you think over the next year that talk about a new party, a new force, a new something in British politics is just hot air or does is there any chance any of this could get traction? I mean, I think it, it's hot air. And the reason I do is because of the election result. It might not have been, I think, if... Labour hadn't done as well as Labour did at the election. But the bottom line here is is that lots of people who said that they were disenfranchised and didn't feel like they had a party that they could vote for at the beginning of the election were saying that in the earlier part of this year 
actually found that they could vote Labour. They fine. could vote Labour, and it really wasn't a problem. And without having a a break away from the more right side of the right wing side of the Labour Party, I think it's impossible to see where the political space for a centre party comes from. And that's why one of the really interesting questions for this autumn is the opposition to Corbyn inside the Parliamentary Labour Party. It's not gone away. At least half of them, maybe more, I think, still would rather have someone else in charge and don't like the direction that the party is heading in. But they have got very, very little room to complain anymore. I'm not even sure that it's half of the parliamentary party who actually is even unhappy with it any longer. I mean, I think that what we've seen as a consequence of the election result and the reaction to it is that a significant chunk of the Labour Party in the parliamentary party and amongst a section of its more chattering class voters. The problem with Jeremy Corbyn was they thought that Labour got no chance of winning an election. Once that's taken away, they don't seem to have anywhere near as much problem with Jeremy Corbyn as they had before. So I wonder how many people there are left in the parliamentary Labour Party who really have in a more principled sense, if you like, got a Jeremy Corbyn problem. And then you've got to add on to that the fact that Keir Starmer has dragged Labour's Brexit policy into a position, somewhat muddled position still, but still a position that's more palatable to the hardcore Remainers within the Parliamentary Labour Party. So they might just think that they've won a significant battle, or at least a partially significant battle, and that Jeremy Corbyn is malleable in the sense that he wasn't able to resist Starmer's move about this, and so they may well still have the idea that they can invent him into what they want him to be. I I think that ultimately is an illusion. But I just don't see where the energy in the Parliamentary Labour Party is for a real rebellion against Corbyn at the moment. Go back to the election, I was just reading an article by John Curtis, the great polling guru. It's in the newsletter of the Political Studies Association, but it's a very interesting article. I say but, it doesn't follow that none of the other articles are interesting, about the return of two-party politics. And he says it's back, it's back with a vengeance. That's the single takeaway from the election. But it's not old-style two-party politics divided on social or class or traditional ideological grounds. It's age. So his line is, we, we've talked about this before, it could be education, it could be age. So he goes very much with age. The Conservative Party is the party of the old. The Labour Party is the party of the young. And that's now the central division of British politics. And you read that and you think, OK, but then that surely leaves ground for people in the middle, say, looking at you and me. (laughs) But then when you look at it, it's not like there are that many people in the middle because the young includes people pretty much up to the age of about 45 and then quite quickly they flip into being the old. And you might think a party that represents 18 to 24-year-olds and a party that represents 65-plus would leave a massive middle ground, but it's not like that at all. And actually, there don't seem to be that many people who feel the Tories are too old for us and Labour are too young for us. The people in the middle either go young or they go old. I think this is a really interesting phenomenon, and it's made in part by the fact that Generation X, which is the voters in the middle who could be fought over, is actually significantly smaller than either the generation younger than the millennials or the baby boomers. But it also seems that Generation X divides in half and that the younger half of it is actually really quite like the millennials in certain numbers of the views that they hold in some sense their life experiences and the older end of it is at least a little bit like the younger baby boomers I don't actually think that we're like the older baby boomers so 
in that sense, the breaking it down into these three generational cycles doesn't actually work because you've got a, a generation that's actually just doesn't have enough of a distinctive identity to make its own claim. There's a certain paradox there because for quite some time, as we've talked about before, it was this generation that actually was providing all the leaders of the primary principal political parties in Britain. But it does seem that you were born by about 1965 and your attitudes are really very different than someone who was born in 1970, 1972. So it is weirdly binary in a way. It is weirdly binary. And I mean, obviously there's dissenters within that, but it's quite difficult to see, I think, how this is really going to be pulled apart. And I think one of the things that's evidence of that is the fact of how well the Tories' polling has stood up over the summer. Because if you look at it in any objective sense, with any sense of what usually happens when the governing party gets into the kind of predicaments and messes that it has been since the general election, you'd say this is a party that should be polling in the top 20s, low 30s. Yeah, and, and just for, for reference, today's poll, today's YouGov poll that I saw just now, 41, 42, I think, and still seven for the Lib Dems. And it's absolutely classic. Both of them around 40 and very, very little movement. So I've been thinking about this question of the new party and what might drive it. And underlying it seems to be this feeling that there ought at least to be lots of people who feel that they don't have a political home. And obviously, there's often comparisons made with the early 1980s. And then the SDP are held up as the example of how if they didn't manage it, then they're not going to manage it now. And certainly it was much more propitious then than, than now. But it sort of made me think of the SDP are too early for me. I don't really remember it. So my version of this, which might sound a bit um, trivial, I guess, is when the independent newspaper was formed. I can remember quite vividly, there was a point where it seemed like there must be room for another national, serious national newspaper in Britain, because the Times was really stuffy and boring. The Telegraph was for old people and The Guardian was for earnest people. So if you weren't one of them, and then they created this new newspaper. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, they've made a newspaper for me. (laughs) It's like, this is so great. And this newspaper is going to clean up because the other ones look so moribund. And this one was fresh and it was trying to do lots of new things. And it was just so exciting. And there's a kind of longer term morality tale. Does the independence still exist? Just the eye, isn't it? The eye. But it's really that just, and the three established ones, the tribal ones, are as entrenched as they've ever been. You know, and obviously the independence, there's that sort of sense that there's this whole group of people who kind of don't fit into these boxes, that if someone could just create the right product for them, you can, but those boxes are so hard to dislodge. Yeah, I, I think I do remember the SDP phenomenon, and I think there's a difference in why that ultimately failed. I mean, partly it's a consequence. It's not of, a newspaper. It's partly the consequence of the electoral system, obviously. But I think as well, if you look at the way that the Conservatives recovered from the nadir that they reached when they were losing by-elections in 1981, 1982, to the alliance between the Social Democrats and the, the Liberals, is is that they pulled back voters into the Conservative fold for some fairly pragmatic reasons. You weren't seeing, I don't think, a deep identification in a tribal sense of those voters who came back to the Conservatives in 1983 and stuck with them through 87 and 92. They were reluctant Tory voters, but they looked at the Labour Party as it then was and said, we don't want these people governing the country. I think that what has happened, though, is, is that our politics has got more tribal since then, not less 
tribal. And so the space for people who can be fought over, the space for fighting over pragmatic voters is smaller than it was. And I think that is reflected in the fact of the ability of the Conservatives to hold on to these voters, that they acquired some of them for the first time in the general election in, in June, in the face of, you know, like mounting practical political problems. The other problem with trying to create a new party is it's all very well to say there are lots of people who, in theory, don't want to vote Labour, don't want to vote Conservative and have given up on the Lib Dems. So let's invent a new party for them. But one of the problems people have is not just with the different brands on offer, but with political parties. So when, say, Mandelson comes along and says, well, look at what Macron has done. You know, look how he managed to create something out of nothing. It's not a political party. He built some kind of personality cult movement which is in a way what the Labour Party has slightly become too. I mean, the Labour Party is such a successful quote-unquote party. It's not a party anymore in the old-fashioned sense. It's a social movement. Social movements are great. They're easy to build. They're quite easy to persuade to fall apart as well. I'm sure there's a space for a social movement, but it's political parties that people are sick to the back teeth of to a certain extent. So it seems like an odd thing to try and create Let's look at British politics. People hate this party and that party because one of the things they're sick of are political parties. So let's build another political party into this. It's not going to work. No, I can't see how it works. And, and I think that the Macron comparison falls down as well is, is because Macron basically took a part of the Socialist Party in France and created a personal movement out of it. He created the right wing side, if you like, of the Socialist Party. And he was able to do that because of the fact that at that time the Socialist Party was in government and Hollande had been completely humiliated you know, with approval ratings about 4%, I think, at the, the lowest level. Now, Labour Party hasn't been in power since 2010. And as I said before, if there's going to be a centre party, a good part of that has got to come from the one side of the Labour Party and it's not in a position where there is somebody who can do what Macron did because I think it does require the humiliation of being in power and then saying okay this just doesn't work anymore we need to start again. There's still possibilities of people investing a lot of hopes in the Corbyn project. Now what happens when that fails that may when it's been in government I mean and it fails that may be a whole other ball game and then we might see the possibilities for realignment but I can't see how it can happen in I mean, even if you leave aside institutional and historical differences between Britain and France, I can't see how anything can happen until something changes within the Labour Party. And for something now to change within the Labour Party, I think that Corbyn or somebody like him would have to be Prime Minister, and then it would have to fall apart. We're going to talk more about France. You, people who listen to this podcast regularly will know we're very interested in what's happening in France, and we'll see over time what the Macron presidency ends up as. But at this moment, for La Rentrée, it looks a bit squeezed between being a social movement and being a political party in the sense that it could be outflanked by a social movement, which is Mélenchon's movement, which will be a kind of street politics on the one hand, and it could be outmaneuvered by the established political parties who are better at just the boring, grinding business. I mean, that's what parties are for. I mean, part of the reason people don't like political parties is that they're not meant to be fun. They're meant to be grinding, mechanical ways of getting results in politics. And there is a risk for Macron that can't turn his movement into a party really it's not set up for that but as a movement because he's now in government it's going to be outflanked by movements of protest so if it goes wrong that's why i think it's going to go wrong it's neither one thing nor that it is not an example of how easy it is to set up a new party it's an example of how difficult it is i agree and you can see that in terms of the relations that macron seems to now have with members of his movement 
uh, en marche in the, leg- in the French legislature, in the French National Assembly. They've got one idea of what they're supposed to be in this project, and he's got a completely different idea of what they're supposed to be. But if he is going to get things done, then unless he's going to start you know, having his prime minister rule by decree, then he needs to be able to legislate, and that means that he has to have a functioning party. We have learned talking about politics in real time not to rule anything out. And though it looks fixed in the way I described, two parties polling around 40%, quite hard to see what causes anything to move. We have learned, I think, in the last year that things move quite quickly now when they do move. Space could open up. I think the conferences are going to be really interesting and we will be discussing those in real time too. So as I mentioned up front, the big electoral event coming up is the German election in a few weeks. And that looks so odd now in this topsy-turvy world that we now live in. It's odd because it looks so normal. Like normal elections look really odd. There hasn't been a big election recently which has looked so conventional as this one. Sort of incumbent centre-right politician, well ahead in the polls, seemingly able to outperform her rival just on the grounds of competence and better the devil you know politics we're so unused to that it makes german politics look a bit freakish because it's so unfreakish i think that's true but i think there's also something that we can easily forget underneath that is is that in one sense it's german politics it's been a bit freakish since let's say 2005 which i think was when merkel first came to power because of the three governments that she's formed since then two of them have been grand coalitions with her main, the main opposition party, with the Social Democrats. And that isn't something that you see, really, in other countries' politics, or at least the ones that we tend to talk about. So although, on the one hand, we see Merkel as having this political ascendancy and as being politically triumphant and standing out against all the, sometimes what people think of as carnage around her, actually she's succeeded in much narrower terms than that, and that she's constantly or for most of the time anyway you know had to make compromises with the principal opposition party and you can't imagine any of the countries France or Britain or America having been governed like this in the last decade or so I mean you you imagine if we tried to have a governing coalition of the Conservatives and Labour over the last decade what that would have looked like as politics it wouldn't have looked anything like what's happened in Germany during this time. So what explains it why is it that German politics is inherently less partisan? Is it the system is geared, and it partly is the system is geared to avoid partisanship? I mean, lots of features of German politics are to do with trying to avoid, to put it politely, the mistakes of the past. And that's one of them. But is there a kind of, do we think, bubbling partisanship under the surface that could break out at any moment? Because the other thing, obviously, that makes Germany different, and you've talked about this a lot, is is the economic conditions at work, who are the winners and who are the losers from the carnage. And Germans, certainly including German workers, have been the winners thus far. But is there, is it fragile, this bipartisanship? If we go back a, a couple of years, then there was a lot of talk about the rise of a populist party in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland party, and the possibility of that even being a potential coalition partner for Merkel after this election. Now, it looks that that party is is not going to do particularly well in the polls. I think it will do a bit better than it would have looked six months ago. But I think one of the the interesting things here is is that whilst it seemed like in the latter part of 2015 and 2016 that it would be really 
plausible for the alternative for Deutschland party to develop as a potent anti-euro party and particularly to make a critique of the European Central Bank and, and Draghi's pursuit of quantitative easing and the consequences of that for German savers. That hasn't really worked out, even though if you looked at the objective economic facts about quantitative easing and the consequences of it, there's not an obvious reason why that's the case. Now, the, the absence of a political fallout is, is because of the tactical and perhaps strategic failures of that alternative for Deutschland party to exploit the situation in the way which it looked like they were going to be able to. So I think it would be wrong to say there's no destabilising factors at work in German politics. It's that there hasn't been a leader of that party that has been able to do with those destabilising factors what might have been done. Now, one of the reasons for that is probably because of the fact that German economy is in a significantly better shape than others. And it's not like there are no payoffs for the German economy from the monetary decisions that Draghi and the European Central Bank have made. Presumably, this will be Angela Merkel's last election. Never say never, but all political careers end. Even if they don't all end in failure, they do all end. There is a this is a sweeping historical comparison, but German politics is partly about avoiding the mistakes of the past. And there is one version of German history which says that it started to go wrong when Bismarck left because there was a kind of vacuum. That there was a version of German politics that existed under Bismarck, a strong leader, a dominant leader in Europe, a particular way of doing politics, which stifled thinking about what comes next. And then when something had to come next, there wasn't really anything there. Now, this is very different from that. But there must be those kinds of risks in this really strange political time that we're in. You are the stable force in European politics and you have a stable figurehead. And in some ways, as you said, she is a figurehead as well as a politician taking her own decisions. And you take that out, which will happen at some point, are there risks in German politics that it's just delaying the moment of confronting a series of choices that actually the German public and the German state are not equipped to make? I don't really think there's something in that. And I think if you look at the underlying difficulties that Germany faces at the moment and is going to continue to face in, in the future, I think it'd be fair to say is, is that Merkel has managed those problems rather than in any way really directly addressed those problems. One of them is obviously the euro and the crucial question there is is what's going to happen when the ecb does withdraw from its quantitative easing and what the consequences of that are and whether if and when that makes life more difficult for the southern european economies what the german responses of that is going to be i think as i talked about a few weeks ago there's really difficult questions for germany about the atlantic relationship in the context of German business interests in Russia and Germany's energy alliance effectively with Russia or the fact that it's basically importing about a third of its oil and gas from there. And I think that there's a really vexed question about Poland's position in the European Union. That's very consequential for Germany. And you can see that Macron's been quite aggressive in some of the things that he said about Poland's position in the European Union over the last few weeks and what the German reaction to that is, what Merkel really thinks about Macron being as condemnatory as he has been about Poland. 
And then I think there's a Turkish question because obviously a lot of what's happened to Merkel in the last few years within the EU context has been bound up with that question in regard to refugees and then the U-turn that she made on refugees and essentially offering a deal to the Turkish government in order to stem the movement of refugees and migrants out of Turkey. And now Turkey looks like it's moving away in some quite fundamental sense, I'd say, from NATO, from the Atlantic Alliance, from European countries it's becoming closer to Russia and that will have profound consequences for Germany too now these are huge questions and I'm not I'm not judging Merkel for not having found answers to them I'm not at all sure that anybody could find answers um, to them but she's tactically managed most of these issues rather than confronting them directly and at some point is they will have to be confronted directly this is talking politics my name is David Runciman Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we'll be looking at the German election in more detail as we get nearer to it and also its its consequences. We'll be joined, among other people, by Chris Clark, who we've had on this podcast before, one of the, if not the leading historians of Germany. We'll also be talking more about Turkey too. Could be that Turkey is still the most important place in the world for determining the future of Western democracy. And we haven't talked about Trump yet, Helen, <laughs> and we don't have to. So this week... Houston is underwater and Trump is there, or he was there yesterday. North Korea fired a rocket over Japan, not at Japan, fortunately, but over Japan. There is no rentrée in American politics because it never went away. I'm just going to ask one question about Trump because we're going to have enough time to speculate about him. But if you look, say, 12 months ahead, or look slightly further ahead than that the midterms which are going to loom more and more but we won't talk about that now but just take we are seven and a half eight months into his presidency I think so still early days do you see any prospect of this style of politics that is now clearly the way he does it it's off the cuff it involves saying lots of things that are just frankly outrageous it's chaotic it involves lots of revolving doors in and out of the West Wing. It doesn't just alienate lots of people, it terrifies and enrages lots of people. Do you see any prospect over the next 12 months of that becoming normalizable? never mind straightforwardly normal, that we just get used to it? I think it's fair to say that most people, or maybe no one, is used to it yet. Even his supporters aren't used to it. I think they are fired up by it. It's fresh enough, it's new enough, it's different enough, it's frankly crazy enough that it's very hard to just think of it as the new normal. Is there any point where it just becomes something that when you read about it the next day online in the newspapers, you don't draw in your breath sharply? You just kind of recognise it as the thing you read about the day before? I can't see that happening. And in part, I can't see it happening because the very nature of it means that it will just keep generating competence problems, profound 
competence problems. I mean, if you go back to the beginning, if you look at that argument for America ad, I think it was the last ad that the Trump campaign put out, and then you look at the things it was saying, which is a complete denunciation of every aspect of the American establishment. And then you think, OK, this man who just won the presidency on the basis of this kind of argument has now got to fill his administration with people, some of whom have got to be confirmed by the very establishment, i.e. by Congress, the very establishment that he's denouncing. There simply aren't going to be enough people, leaving every other consideration aside, like his tweeting and everything else, there simply aren't going to be enough people who can possibly act as a vehicle for this project of his before you even then get on to the fact that he's got personally to work with them and the issues that he clearly has with working with, with, people. It, with individuals so that it seems to me that right from the beginning there was just no way that this kind of politics could be stabilized into just turning into some kind of like routine thing which people might be outraged by but they could recognize it as a political phenomenon so because it will constantly generate this kind of melodrama it just can't not I just don't see any real prospect of any of us really getting used to it. And at the same time, the very nature of the reaction to it, the outrage to it, is itself a political energy to which there then will be a reaction because that is, you know, in politics you have action and you have reaction. So it just goes on and on and on. I just don't see a way out. And do you see risks for the Democrats in this? So Bannon after he left the White House, has been saying, among other things, and I'm paraphrasing here, but so long as it remains about anger and identity politics and race, we've got the Democrats because we we know how to win that. The implication in a way being that as long as it doesn't stabilise and normalise, as long as the heat is all around these questions, there are various ways of interpreting what he's saying, one of which might be that people will never get onto the competence question because it won't arise. But is there a case that as we eventually do lead up to the next serious consequential electoral breakpoint, which is the midterms, the Democrats need a little bit of normalisation so people can just look at this failing administration for what it is, which is one that can't govern? And that if, if it is, as you describe, an endlessly escalating set of, sort of tweets and counter-tweets, that we don't get there and that the Democrats are potentially therefore vulnerable because Trump's vulnerability must be his incompetence rather than the outrage he generates. Yeah, I think that that works the other way around in this sense. I think the best thing the Democrats have got going for them is the escalating incompetence because that means that people who really don't like Trump but don't share the Democrats' worldview have got a reason to vote with the Democrats. I think that the caveat to that is is that the way that many senior Democrats and many Democrat supporters, those who in some sense are kind of presenting themselves as the resistance, I think that's a word that's not infrequently used, have responded to the Trump presidency are also, I think, making life difficult for the Democratic Party. And in some sense, I think that's where Bannon has got a point. Not necessarily because if the Democrats keep talking about identity politics that they lose. I think that doesn't necessarily work, particularly when you go on to the second part of what he said is, and we keep talking about economic nationalism and we win, because there isn't any way in which Trump can deliver economic nationalism. Exactly. I was going to say that's the that's gaping the, hole in his argument. That just, that just, they, they can't do it, regardless of what the rights and wrongs of that are. It can't be, it can't be delivered. But... Are the Democrats making it harder for people who did not vote Democrat last time and they need to vote Democrat both in the midterms and the coming presidential election 
to vote for them? I think yes, they are. And I think that they're doing it because they're doubling down on a lot of the problems that Hillary Clinton had in her campaign. One thing that I think is really striking is, is the Democrats have now really doubled down on being very hawkish on foreign policy, which is a position that distinguished Hillary Clinton from Obama and to some extent it distinguished her from Kerry, you know, when he fought in, in 2004. You know, Democrats in 2004 and Obama, at least in 2008, were going for the anti-war vote, if you can put a, a label on it. And what the Democrats have doubled down on since is Russia, Russia, Russia. And there's no space in which anybody, it seems, at the top level of the Democratic Party is now articulating an argument that says maybe America needs to fight in fewer wars and doesn't need such a confrontational position with Russia. I think they've also doubled down on defending Obamacare. Now, in one sense, Trump's given them a gift here, because, or Trump and the Republicans, I should say, is giving them a gift here because they've been so completely incompetent and chaotic in trying to repeal Obamacare. But I don't think we should forget is, is that the Democrats had lots of problems with Obamacare before we get to the Trump presidency. That's why they've lost all these elections since the 2010 midterm elections, or it's a primary reason why they have. So it's one thing saying we oppose the repeal of Obamacare, but do the Democrats really want to line themselves up as being the party that defends Obamacare as Obamacare without addressing the concerns of those voters who've been antagonised by the Democrats' position on it? I'm not sure that that works. So what it leaves the Democrats, I think, is, is, is in a position where they don't have much to say about matters of substantive policy. You can go a long way in politics without having much to say on matters of substantive policy. But can policy. you, when, you've just, when you're at the same time basically doubling down on the weaknesses that you've shown in losing the previous election? I'm not so sure. We shall see. I'm going to ask you a couple more things. Corbyn, Brexit, Trump. Our catchphrase, that's still the world that we're in. But we'll be talking, we're bound to be talking 12 months' time about some other people too. Is there anywhere or any kinds of people or even any names of people that you think, I'm not, I'm not asking you to make a prediction, I'm not saying this person will be the person who is on people's lips in 12 months' time, but say some politicians or some political figures who you're interested in seeing what the next 12 months has in store for them and most people aren't focusing on that right now. Is there a sort of what currently looks like a bit of a side story or side show that you're interested in seeing how that unfolds, leaving aside the, the headline figures and headline narratives, which unquestionably are still going to be dominating in 12 months' time? Yeah, I don't think it's a, a sideshow. It's just under-commented upon, and it's something that I've realised that I've been pretty ignorant about, and that is the present Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, my pronunciation of that was probably entirely wrong and the more that you look into him he's been effective leader of China for five years I, I think now he looks much more like this phenomenon we've seen of increasingly authoritarian leaders and doing something different than what their predecessors have done and there's a party congress I think it's coming up in November when it, you know, from all the reporting that I read uh, gives the impression that he's going to consolidate his grip over the top echelons of the, the Chinese Communist Party. And what China does, as we know, matters you know, profoundly. And I think 
the contribution of this particular leader to the direction that China's been going on has not been sufficiently appreciated in discussion of Western politics, and it will have consequences for Western politics. Is it plausible to attach the populist label to him, populist authoritarian? That's a good question that I'm not really sure that I that I know the answer to. I think you may be able to in foreign policy terms in the sense of the, I mean by that, the US-China relationship and some of the language around that has become more nationalist. And if populism is nationalism, yeah. then dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I think though that what you can see in terms of what might in the end be his sort of signature policy, which is the the one belt, one road, and China basically trying to create, in some sense, a Eurasian economic land mass, then I think you'd be struggling to put populism on on that. That looks like a much more of a long-term strategic plan, trying to take account of what China's weaknesses and China's vulnerabilities in the international system are, and trying to put in place something that he thinks um, will act as a, a bulwark against those vulnerabilities. One of the things I'm looking forward to is watching how Brexit unfolds, not because I think that's going to be a huge amount of fun, but it will as it becomes more and more serious and politically charged, not Brexit itself, but what Brexit means. It will reconfigure European politics. And there are almost bound to be some European politicians who are on no one's radar in Britain who emerge as either figureheads for a kind of opposition to Britain's position or as allies of Britain's position. So one of the reasons that I've always been instinctively pro-European is I liked the thought going way back that I thought one day it's not going to happen now, that European politics would evolve to the point where British voters would be forced to choose between, say, a Danish and a Greek politician in some meaningful election. Okay, hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. I always thought that was a nice idea. (laughs) But I think what we will see is some European politicians forcing themselves on the consciousness of the British public, whom they've not heard of at all now, simply because Brexit is such a huge thing, and people will, as we get nearer and nearer to an outcome, line up in different camps. Camps need leaders and leaders need a message that cuts across elite politics. And so I, I, you know, by definition, I can't put a name to this misty face. But some people in European politics, maybe even obscure politicians, maybe even from countries we don't normally think about, will force themselves on our consciousness. And I think it will be really interesting to see how that works. Um, either way, I mean, Britain needs allies in Europe. And the popular press is going to want to find both villains and friends. I mean, obviously, at the moment, the, the, the European um, Union 27 has got an interest in presenting itself as unified as possible over Brexit and the terms of these negotiations. But, you know, it is not the case that each of those 27 states has the same interest in relation to Britain's departure from the European Union. There are clearly profound differences of interest. I mean, Ireland's the most obvious example, but it's not the only example. And I think that if it, if it looks at a certain point like that it's proving very difficult to reach an agreement, even an interim agreement, that you will find they may be a minority that some European leader or European politician within the EU27 is going to turn around and say, actually, we need to make a trade agreement with Britain. And then another group of politicians is going to say, there's something more important than that. And that is, is that Britain must pay for leaving the European Union. They might couch it in slightly different language than that, but that is what they'll mean. So what has been a 
uncontested politics at the moment within the EU27 has to become contested because simply there is not a unity of underlying interests in relation to those 27 states. And they don't all agree about what the future credibility of the EU in this is either. And at the moment, the, the personalities are tired. I mean, on the British side, David Davis, Boris Johnson, it's, it's hard to get people to think in fresh ways about these people. And then Barnier or Juncker, it just feels like the, the characters are kind of stock characters. It needs some fresh faces. And the next 12 months, I'm sure, will deliver one or two. The Brexit story will acquire one or two significant actors who, apart from anything else, might have some actual political charisma. Even that mythical Danish politician I want to vote for in some fantasy European presidential election. Who knows? It right? is. I mean, there can be some darker versions of this too, because, you know, we haven't, we used to talk about Italy quite a bit and we haven't for a while. And, you know, clearly the majority of the party leaders in Italy are now anti-Euro. And Italy does have to have an election to it some point and that's got I think the potential to play into this but at the same time it's not difficult to see a, a, a Scandinavian politician who might become the rallying call for let's make a free trade agreement with Britain and leave aside the question of the fact they don't want to be part of this political union any longer because I think one of the things about this Brexit debate is is that it can be made to be a lot more complicated than it is now in one sense it's profoundly complicated because you simply can't unravel something like membership of the European Union in a, in a relatively short time period like we're trying to do. On another hand, I think there is a relatively simple dimension to it, and that is, is can Britain have a free trading relationship with the European Union without being part of a political union or a partial political union or a labour union with those states? And at some point there is a kind of yes or no answer to that question and different people within the European Union I think are going to take different views as to what they want that outcome to be. And complex political questions get resolved on the whole by experts but simple political questions depend on political leadership. They do. And we'll revisit this in 12 months time and see who we're talking about but we'll still be talking about Corbyn, Brexit and Trump. So over the next 12 months we will be trying to find the most interesting people to discuss this unfolding political drama that never ends with you. We've got some really exciting people lined up. We hope to be speaking quite soon to David Miliband about some of the things Helen and I have just been talking about, but also about the migration crisis. We hope to be speaking to Hilary Mantel about court politics in the age of Trump. Who is Henry VIII? Who is Thomas Cromwell? Hilary Mantel will be one of a series of interviews we are doing with leading writers for the London Review of Books, and we are delighted that the LRB will be our new partners on Talking Politics. You can find out more about them at lrb.co.uk and all of the fantastic writing that they publish. We will tell you more about our plans as we go forward, and we will be with you every week to try and make sense of this crazy world. Do please join us. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. 
I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>